Open up your Bibles uh, to the book of John. If you're not familiar with uh, the Bible, that's okay. We're glad that you're here with us. There should be a Bible in the back of the pew there in front of you. It's the black book next to the red ones, and you can just have the pro chip. It's on page 963 is where we're going to be this morning, all right? So you can look like you're an absolute champ when it comes to finding stuff in the Bible. So we're going to be in John chapter 19. Now, those of us who have been here on Sunday mornings regularly, we've actually been walking through the gospel of John uh, ever since the fall. We've been looking at what John has to say about Jesus's life and ministry. There are four gospels in the Bible. Those are the, the four books that talk about what Jesus did when he was on earth, walking around and doing miracles and teaching and preaching and all those kinds of things. Three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very similar in the accounts that they tell, but the Gospel of John is really, really unique. John was one of the disciples who followed Jesus around during those early days, and as such, he just has a really unique perspective in the things that he records. So this morning as we're diving in, we're picking up towards the end of Good Friday, and we're actually going to go back a little bit, uh, and then we'll pick up onto what we see with the Resurrection Sunday. My hope and my prayer is that if you're not familiar with these things, my hope is that you'll get to see how awesome Jesus is. And for those of us who've been in church for a while who are used to hearing these things, my prayer and my hope for you is that you'll be encouraged again by how awesome a God you are. In fact, how many of you have ever been asked the question, who are you looking for? Maybe, you know, there's a bunch of different scenarios that that could happen. Um, I, I think about like when you're, you're sitting there at a school play for one of your kids, you know, and you're sitting there and there's like 60 kids up on the stage and you're, you know, you're sitting there and you're trying to wave and you're trying to find, and maybe somebody next to you goes, hey, who are you looking for? Uh, or, you know, or perhaps maybe you've been asked that question when you walked into an office you've never been in for, like you're looking for a doctor or, you know, stuff like that. You walk in and the receptionist says, hi, who are you looking for this morning? Maybe, you know, you've been asked that as you're scanning the crowd of people coming through security at the airport. You know, you're trying to find your loved one as they get off the plane, and you're excited to embarrass them with a sign of welcome home from prison or whatever it is that you want to do to embarrass your, your family with, you know. But you're, you're looking for them, and you're looking through the crowd, and, and somebody standing next to you says, oh, who are you looking for, right? There may be even have a time where you were asked that by a clerk at a store or somebody at a theme park or a zoo because you're frantically looking for your child who just wandered off and you have that moment of panic. Uh, If you've never had that experience, uh, it's just not fun. We've never lost ours for long, but I can remember one particular Sunday. I don't remember what was going on. We were here. Most people had left, and Caleb had just wandered off to another part of the building. We didn't know where he was, and for some reason during that time period, uh, Caleb liked to just not respond when you would yell his name. And as a, as a pastor who has to kind of train his voice to be able to project and be heard, I can be loud when I need to. And it's not a real large building. So I was screaming at the top of my lungs, Caleb, you better get out here now, <laughs> right? Because we had that moment of panic where I thought, where is he? You know, those kind of moments are scary. Who are you looking for? Maybe this morning, if I ask you that, who are you looking for? Maybe you're looking for a new contractor. You're looking for a new dentist or a new doctor. Maybe you're looking for a a mate. You're looking for a spouse. You're looking for somebody to love you. You're looking for a good friend. As we turn to to John 19 and 20 this morning, we're going to hear Jesus ask that very same question. Who are you searching My challenge to you, by the way, it's not wrong to be looking for a spouse. It's not wrong to be looking for a new contractor or a new dentist or whatever you may be looking for. But can I challenge you this morning, out of all of the people you're seeking, 
I want to challenge you to seek the risen Savior this morning, okay? That's my challenge for you. If you catch nothing else out of this morning's message, I want you to walk out of here with a heart inclined to seek the risen Savior. Now, as we go through, we're going to look at this story kind of in three different pieces. There's almost three different scenes that John records for us of people who were seeking the risen Savior. Now, let's be honest. In some of this, they didn't know that Jesus had risen yet. So it's a little bit anachronistic to say they were seeking the risen Savior. However, we know that he is, okay? We know that he's been raised. We trust and believe and we hope in that. And so we're seeking the risen Savior even if they weren't quite there yet, okay? That'll make more sense here in just a second. So as we're looking then, I want to challenge you as we look at their lives to three at least different, three different scenarios in which we need to be seeking the risen Savior this morning. So pick up with me in John chapter 19, verse 38. Now, this is just after where we stopped on Friday night. Friday night when we were together, we looked at Jesus' crucifixion. If you're not familiar with the story, what happened was Jesus had come to earth as God in the flesh. He was doing all kinds of miracles and was teaching people about who God is and what God does. That made the Jewish religious leaders really mad because the things that Jesus was teaching contradicted what they thought was important. So it finally got to the point where more people liked Jesus than liked the religious leaders, so they had him put to death. The way they had him put to death was they convinced the Romans that he was an enemy of the state, and so they had him crucified, saying that he was the king of the Jews. Now, the irony of that that we've looked at over the last few weeks is he really was the king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, not just the king of the Jews, but the king over all of creation. By the way, that phrase, king of kings and lord of lords, here's how you can think of that. That means if you had all of the kings, all of the presidents, all of the prime ministers, all of the emperors of the world in one room, Jesus is the king over all of them. If you put all of the people who are lords over different things, if you put them all in one room, Jesus is the Lord over all of that, okay? He's the one who's ultimately in charge. So what we saw Friday night, Friday is Good Friday. That's the day that we commemorate Jesus's death for us. As Jesus was placed on the cross to die, he died an excruciatingly painful death. But more than just the physical pain, the Bible teaches us that in that moment, Jesus was actually not just dying because some people were jealous of him, but Jesus was dying to take the penalty for sin that I deserve and that you deserve as well. See, sometimes we hear that word sin. The Bible, when it talks about sin, sin is anything that displeases God or goes against his law. It's the bad things that we do that we shouldn't do. It's the good things we should do that we don't do. And it's even the thoughts that we think. A lot of people have a a bigger idea of what sin is, but really sin is anything we do where we don't do what we should do or we do what we shouldn't do, even in our thoughts. So when we look at that, the Bible says that all of us have sinned, every single one of us, myself included. Everybody in this room, everybody on earth has sinned. And the payment that you and I deserve for our sins, what we've earned, our paycheck, is death. We deserve to die for what we've done. So Jesus loved us so much that he would go to the cross and take all of that sin and die in our place. He took my death on the cross. That's why Good Friday is good, by the way, is because he was paying for my sin and for your sin. Today, if you're willing to come to trust him, you can receive forgiveness. Now, after we saw Jesus dying on the cross, he said that he had paid the penalty for sin. But here's the thing. So far, the statistics are pretty universal. Out of 100 people, 100 of them die. 
So Jesus dying, although we know that there was a spiritual significance going on behind the scenes, that's not really that big a deal because that's just what happens. You live and you die. But here's where it gets so incredible. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus overcame death. Now, here's what we're going to be seeing this morning. We're going to back up just a little bit before his resurrection and see some folks who were already following Jesus before that happened. So let's go ahead and, and dive in then. Like I said, Jesus had been on the cross there. Uh, they, they, he had died. They wanted to make sure he was dead, so they put a spear through his side and confirmed his death. And then that's where we pick up here in verse 38 of John chapter 19. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, now Pilate's the Roman governor, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths, with the fragrant spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. Now, let's go back and and try to explain some of this. From Joseph and Nicodemus, we see that we need to be willing to seek the risen Savior even when it's costly. Even when it's costly. You see, you go back there and you start reading this really beautiful passage of Scripture. It starts off rough because Jesus is dead. And in those days, they didn't have funeral homes and morticians and things. So the family was responsible for preparing Jesus' body. His family and friends would have been responsible for securing the tomb, making sure all was taken care of. And as we said Friday night, Mary, his mother, was likely a widow at this point. And Jesus didn't have any real money to his name. You remember, Jesus didn't have his own home. He traveled from place to place. And so it's likely that their family wasn't very well off. So they may not have had a place there in Jerusalem. Remember, this is also not Jesus' hometown. They're from up in Galilee, so they're away from home. They need to get the body buried. And there's this man named Joseph of Arimathea who comes forward to offer his tomb for Jesus' burial. Now, John tells us that he was a secret disciple of Jesus because of his fear of the Jews. When we put this together what we, with what we read in those other gospel accounts, we find that Joseph was actually a wealthy member of Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish council. That's the guys who just put Jesus to death. They're the guys who had Jesus arrested. They're the ones who trumped up the charges and convinced Pilate to have him killed. So Joseph is a member of that council. You can understand then why he's afraid to say that he wants to follow Jesus. They just killed Jesus. If they find out that Joseph is a follower of Jesus, he's going to risk, at the very least, his status, his ability to serve on the Sanhedrin, the respect of all of his peers, his money, possibly even his own life. But yet here's what we find. In spite of all it would cost, as he watched Jesus dying as the Lamb of God who fulfilled all of the Passover sacrifices that they'd been looking toward, as they watched Jesus die, Joseph is so firmly convinced that Jesus is worth following that he's willing to to disregard the cost and seek the Savior. 
as he does this. I mean, it's going to be financially costly. The other passages tell us this is his tomb. This is the tomb that Joseph was supposed to be buried in. And here he's putting Jesus' body out. He doesn't know the end of the story, so he doesn't know that Jesus is just renting it for a few days, right? But he's willing to give everything. He's willing to give even his own tomb, his own burial plot to be able to, to say, hey, Jesus, this is for you. This is for you to be able to be cared for and, and for your body to be respected. We see that he's willing to, to spend financial costs, like I said, the relational cost. Keep in mind, it's hard for us to understand, but this culture is an honor-shame culture. We're not really that way. We don't so much are concerned about keeping up face and things like that. If you have ever studied Japanese culture, you see that really strongly in Japanese and other Oriental cultures where you have to be very careful what you do because you don't want to do anything that offends or that causes you to bring shame on your family. And so as Joseph, this wealthy member of the Sanhedrin, is identifying with Christ, he's laying all of that on the line because he recognizes that his Savior took his shame on the cross. And it doesn't matter what anybody else says. He wants to make sure that he's honoring Jesus the best he can. Now, Joseph is not alone in doing that. There's another guy that that John tells us about, a man by the name of Nicodemus. Now, if you've been with us as we've been going through John, this is actually the third time we've heard about this guy, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was another member of the council. He was another guy who was following Jesus secretly. In fact, the first time we meet him, he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night as Jesus is sitting around a campfire and asks him questions in private because he's too scared to be publicly seen asking Jesus these questions. In fact, it's out of the conversation with Nicodemus that Jesus first begins to tell folks that he is going to be lifted up like he was on the cross. It's in the conversation with Nicodemus, by the way, that we have the most famous Bible verse that's used. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You see, it was in that conversation with Nicodemus that John records these words, that God loved the world in this way, that he would give his only son so that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. By chapter 7 of John, we run into Nicodemus. He's still not willing to own the fact that he's a follower of Jesus, but he does stick up for him. He does defend Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. Now, just like Joseph, as he's watched Jesus die on the cross, and as he's seen the suffering that his Savior has gone through, he's willing to lay it all in. He brings 75 pounds worth of spices to anoint the body. Now, I don't know what was normal and what was considered extravagant. That sounds like a whole lot to me. I imagine it probably was. Any way you cut it, he is publicly identifying with Jesus, even after Jesus' death. Isn't that fascinating? They didn't fully understand the resurrection at this point. They may have heard Jesus talk about it. He had presented it. He'd thrown it out there. But they didn't have a full understanding that Jesus was actually going to come back from the dead. And yet both of these men think that honoring Christ is more important than anything else, even if he's dead. So the first challenge for us then this morning is, is that how we seek the Savior? Do we care more about honoring Jesus than anything else? 
Is he the absolute most important thing where I'm willing to put my reputation on the line, my money, my time, my friends, my relationships? I'm willing to lay it all on the line to say Jesus is the most important thing in my life. We find Joseph and Nicodemus doing that. But will we? Will we? You see, they were willing to honor him when it was costly. We don't know what the process looked like for Joseph to come to Christ. We only know a little bit of Nicodemus' story, but we do know that when the time came, they were willing to seek Jesus no matter what it cost. Now, we haven't gotten to the good part of the story yet. Already we're being challenged to seek Jesus when it's costly. As we move into Sunday morning, though, here in chapter 20 that we're going to get to in just a second, we're going to see that we're seeking Jesus not only when it's costly, but also when it's surprising. When it's surprising. Everything that takes place that morning was surprising in the way that it's recorded. So start with me in chapter 20. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. By the way, remember, when you see that other disciple, those of you who've been here in our study of John, who's that? John. He was humble enough. He didn't ever call himself out by name in these stories. He he was there, but he says, I'm just the one that Jesus loved. I, I don't have anything to say about myself other than the fact that Jesus loved me. So Mary sees that the tomb is empty. She comes back. She gets Simon, and she gets John and says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So at that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Here's what I love about that. That's such an eyewitness detail. And it's such, okay, think about this. Jesus said that God's word will never go away, right? That it's always going to be around. God's going to preserve it forever. So for all eternity, John got to gloat that he was faster than Peter. Isn't that great? By the way, the reason for this is Peter is probably one of the older disciples, and tradition tells us John was the youngest one, all right? So he's just this young whippersnapper. He just is quicker off the gun. So they start out running together. John outpaces Peter, but then look at what happens when they get to the tomb. For if, you, if you're familiar with Peter and what we've seen about him so far, this is just going to make sense. So the other disciple, John, outran Peter, got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Oh, man, I love this story. There's so much fun about this. So they take off running, Like I said, Peter's a little slower on it. John gets there, and John stoops to look through the door. And as he's looking in, I almost can just picture Peter. I kind of, in my head, I don't know why, Peter's a little bit of a stockier fellow. I don't know. It's just kind of in my head how it is. May not be at all the case. But I can just see Peter just kind of like lowering his shoulder and shoving John out of the way as he barrels full steam into the tomb, right? 
I don't know how big the thing was, but I, just, I can just see Peter doing that. John's content to kind of stop and look and try to figure out what's going on. Peter's running in headfirst, right? He gets there and he looks, and they notice something interesting. Not only is Jesus' body gone, the linen cloths that wrapped Jesus are lying there, and the, the one that wrapped his head is folded up neatly to the side. Isn't that fascinating? You see, they would have, when they wrapped the body, they would have wrapped it multiple layers. They would have put the spices in between the layers as they wrapped. And and as they go through this whole process, it would be almost impossible just to slide them off. They were bound to the body. And yet, here they are in a pile as if, I don't know, as if the body just disappeared. But isn't it beautiful to see that whether it was Jesus who folded it or whether it was one of the angels who showed up, who knows? He just took it off his head, folded it up, and laid it to the side. Now, if you had to go past Roman guards to steal a body, you think you're going to take time to unwrap it before you do? It would have been next to impossible to unwrap because of the way that it was done. And even if you did, you think you're going to take time to make sure that the head part was folded up over to the side? Not a chance. But if you're the Savior of the world who has overcome death itself, you get all the time in the world. You're not in a hurry. You have defeated death, and you even made your bed, Right? He folded his laundry and put it away. So there you go. Moms, you can tell your kids. He, he folded his laundry and put it away. If Jesus can fold his laundry on the resurrection Sunday, so can you, all right? There's this beautiful, surprising moment when, can, can you imagine? Like, think about the emotions here. Mary just arrived at the door, panting and out of breath, with tears on her face, saying, I don't know where he is. And then you sprint as fast as you can. You're looking in. Peter comes barreling in. And all of a sudden, you start seeing he's really not here. But he said he wasn't. He said he was going to go. He said he was going to rise. Now, it says there in verse 9 that they didn't fully understand everything. But at the same time, in verse 8, it said, John looked at all these things, and he believed. He believed. Guys, I, I wish that we could be there that morning. I would love, I, I know some folks who have gone to Israel and who've been to the spot that we traditionally think the tomb may have been, but still to be there that morning, to see the actual grave clothes right there, to know that death itself had been beaten. I wonder what it smelled like. You know, you expect a tomb that they didn't embalm in those days. If you remember when they went to open Lazarus's tomb after three or four days, they said, it, it stinks, don't open it. I wonder if it smelled like ozone. That's what I've always thought. You know, like that smell when you're too close to lightning? Is that what it smelled like? Did it just smell like the garden? See, here's the thing I want you to remember. This actually happened. Like, if you had a time machine, you could go back. There was a literal moment where the dead, broken body of Jesus took a breath and was transformed. 
Like, have you ever thought about that? Have you thought about what it would have looked like to see that? Now, none of us saw it. None of, it, none of us got to see what took place. We don't know exactly how it happened, but we do know that Jesus rose from the dead. And the surprise of that moment led John to believe, to seek the risen Savior. Now, as I look across the room today, there's a lot of faces that I don't know, and I'm glad you're here. There's a lot of people that, that I, I don't know your story. I don't know your background. You may have been even surprised yourself that you came today. You came with a family member, a friend. I, I don't know. Maybe the surprising thing for you is that this is finally making sense. You've heard about Christianity a lot. For you, it's always been associated with a particular political party or with a a checklist of do this or don't do that. And what's surprising to hear this morning is that Christianity is not that. Christianity is the fact that we're sinners, every single one of us. And the only reason that I'm right with God is because Jesus saved me. Jesus died in my place and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. And so can you. And so can you. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That means you too. So today, the surprising thing may be that although you may have never heard this or you may have heard it a million times, it's finally making sense. If that's the case, I want to encourage you, seek the risen Savior today. Seek the Savior today. Because, see, that's something different. The surprise of the gospel, when it starts to click and make sense, gets us into the third thing we see this morning. And that is we need to seek the risen Savior when he calls us by name. Number three, we seek the risen Savior when he calls you. Now, I love this. Dive in with me here and Verse 11. Now, keep in mind, by the way, here's another interesting, surprising thing about this. Who was the first person to report that the tomb was empty? Mary. Keep that in mind. That's going to be important in a second. Now, we're picking back up with Mary's story. Verse 11. Apparently, after telling Peter and John, they take off running. She gets there at some point. Looks like Peter and John have already left. She's still outside the tomb crying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying, verse 11. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head, the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Now, why, why does she back talk to the angels? We don't know. Like, she's very curt in her response. There's no, this is a little bit different than typically. It could be that she's so distraught that she she just is out of sorts and has no idea what's going on. I mean, think about it. Mary is one that Jesus had done tremendous work in her life. This is not his mom, Mary. Now, this is another Mary who followed him. Jesus had done tremendous work in her life. And she loved him so dearly because of all that he had done for her. So she is devastated. So in her devastation, she says, I'm crying because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put them. 
Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus staying there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Be careful, by the way, when we read this. Sometimes people say, well, it's because she was crying so hard. It was still too dark. It was, we don't know. Um, there's at least three different times after Jesus is raised from the dead that people don't recognize him. So I think there was something Jesus was doing on purpose. Um, I think he was keeping them from being able to recognize him. How did he do that? Well, he's God, okay? He can do that. And at this point, he's not only God, he's also received his resurrected body, so things are a lot different than they were. But here's what he says. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Verse 15, woman, Jesus said to her, by the way, that's not as rude as it sounds here. That's just the way that they would address people. Why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? There's our question, isn't it? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Can you see it? Here's the tomb. She stoops and she looks in through her tears. She sees these angels and they say, why are you crying? Because they've taken him away and I, I don't know where they've taken him. She hears a noise or something causes her to turn around and she sees Jesus and through her tears, she says, sir, if you've taken his body, tell me where it is and, and I'll take care of it. And, it just, and then she hears her name, Mary. And with a word, she realizes this is her Savior. And she uses the word for the teacher there because that's the term that she would have used for him. She falls at his feet and clings to them because Jesus had called her by name. If I were to ask you to plan the resurrection event, the single most defining moment in human history, okay? What would your list of priorities look like? Go to the biggest place you can to tell the most people possible to get the most notoriety and most recognition, right? I mean, isn't that what you do? Let's assemble all the heads of state. Let's show them that Jesus has come back from the dead. Here he is. This is the one to follow. He is the Lord of lords, the King of kings. And yet, what does he do? He stands in the garden and calls Mary by name. Out of all of the things that he could be doing in this moment, celebrating in heaven with all of the angels, declaring himself Lord over all of the earth, what does he do? He tenderly meets with a brokenhearted woman. By the way, in those days, the Jews said that it was better that you burn your Bible than try to teach it to a woman. A woman's testimony was not trustworthy. And yet Jesus blows all of that up because the very first person to see the risen Savior was Mary, a woman. Why? It reminds me back of John chapter 10, doesn't it? In John chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. 
And he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So in that moment, what Mary heard was the voice of her shepherd calling to her. Isn't that beautiful? How great a God that he would exercise such individual concern at a historical moment to call Mary by name. It's interesting because this question that he made to her, who are you seeking? It's the exact same question he had asked in another garden just a few days before. You remember the night before he was arrested? Jesus was there in the garden with his disciples and a crowd came to arrest him. And as they came up to him with torches, with swords and clubs, Jesus said, who are you seeking? His response to them that night as the crowd was ready to arrest him, they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And if you remember, in that moment, he let the weight of his glory show just a little bit. And the power of him declaring God's name by saying, I am, knocked the Roman soldiers on their back. And yet, here we see, same question, different response. To his enemies, he declared his power in such a way that they fell flat on their backs. To his sheep, he declares her name, so she falls flat on her face at his feet. To seek the risen Savior. You see, that's what this is all about. So are you saying, Sean, that, that you know, I, I'm going to hear Jesus call my name at some point, and I just, just go, like, sit out in the woods this afternoon until I hear Jesus speak to me audibly? No, I, it doesn't happen. Uh, it could. I mean, God's God. He can do whatever he wants. All right, let's just go ahead and put that out there. But the reality is, remember a few minutes ago when I said, if these things are making sense to you, there's something different going on? Remember me saying that? See, the Bible says that you can't understand this without God drawing you to himself. So if these things are starting to make sense to you, then the one who wants to save you is calling your name. He's calling your name today. Can I just encourage you and challenge you to fall at his feet? To worship the risen Savior to give your life to him. Yeah, it's going to be costly. We've already talked about the fact that it may cost your reputation. It may cost everything else. But in giving up all of that, you'll find that it is absolutely without question, without hesitation or reservation worth it. How do I know? I know because this week I had the privilege of sitting with two of our church family within hours of them going home to be with the Lord. Many of you are aware that Lonnie Hogg went home to be with the Lord on Tuesday. What you may not be aware of is that Miss Virgie Stone went home to be with the Lord Saturday morning about 2 a.m. I had the privilege of sitting with Lonnie for a few hours, getting to visit with him. I had the privilege of sitting with Miss Virgie and her family on Friday. 
And there's lots of tears that are shed in those moments. There's lots of pain. But it's tempered by the fact that we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that when their hearts stopped here, they opened their eyes in the presence of our Savior without question, hesitation, or reservation. You know, you could have had everything in the world, all of your reputation, all of your money, achieve whatever status, have whatever influence, but the reality is there will be a moment where you will draw your last period. It's going to happen. And in that moment, not a single bit of that's going to matter. Not a single bit of it. What will matter is whether or not, as he called you to himself, you responded by seeking the risen Savior. I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes for just a moment this morning. Now, if you're a guest here this morning, we're not doing anything unusual. What we're doing is we want to give you just a moment to be able to to respond to what God said to you and what God's doing. We're not going to take long with this. We just kind of give you some some time to, to kind of think through what God said. If you're here this morning and you have never responded to Christ as your Savior and Lord, then my challenge to you is, if he's calling your name, seek the risen Savior right now. You say, Sean, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that means. Great. That's a great place to be because now you're teachable. <laughs> what it means is you say, God, I, I know that I have sinned. I know that I've fallen short of what you've called me to do and to be. And I want to turn from living life my way to turn to doing what Jesus tells me to do. I know that I can't be good enough to save myself. I can't try hard enough. I can never earn it. So today I trust Jesus to be my Savior and to be my Lord. That means my boss, my leader, my guide. If you've never done that this morning, Cry out to him like that and find salvation today. If you're here this morning, though, and and you know that you have been saved, my question for you is, how diligently are you still seeking him? Remember, he's the one who modeled for us. He's the one who was perfect for us because he went to the cross when it was costly. He honored the Father in surprising ways by dying in our place. And he's the one whose name is worthy above every other name to be called. So are you living like that? If not, what do you need to change today to honor him as he should? I invite you then to take this time. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song of response where we respond to what God has said and doing. If you need to come down here and make these steps kind of like an altar and just kneel and pray just to let the outward body of, or outward posture of your body reflect the inward posture of your heart, you can. If you need to talk to me about what it means to follow Jesus or something I can pray with you about, you can come here and let me know. If not, just do business with God as we sing. So I'll pray and then we'll stand and sing. Father, we're so grateful for this day and grateful for your love. We thank you that you're the God who sought us. You're the God who came after us, the God who pursued us and who pursues us even still. 
If there's anybody here this morning or anybody who's watching online who's not yet placed their trust in you, God, would you draw them to yourself even now? Help them to make that decision to follow you. Regenerate them, transform them, make them new in the way that only you can. For those of us who follow you, we ask that you give us the strength to do so well. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with us and let's sing this morning.